We have gone as far as verse 15. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We do read in verse 15 that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we do pray that this morning, that as we study your word, we finish this chapter, as the charge is given to Timothy, that we know that this is for us. I pray that our hearts would be soft and teachable before the Lord right now, before you, because these are your words. And Lord, I pray that you would touch our hearts with your word, that it may be worked out in our lives. So we commit this time to the word of God. We give this time to you speaking to our hearts. And only are we going to look at the implication, but the application for us today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So 1 Timothy, of course, is one of the three pastoral epistles that we have in the New Testament. And Paul is writing to this young pastor, Timothy. Paul had taken Timothy. When you read in Acts chapter 16, Paul on his second missionary journey in Lystra, he would ask Timothy to join him. And at this time that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, Timothy has been with Paul for about 15 years. And we know that Timothy traveled with Paul. He learned from Paul. He, he would minister alongside of Paul. He was faithful in doing that. He even suffered with Paul. And as we have read in the opening statement of this letter, it was Paul addressing with tenderness and with love, Timothy is a true son in the faith. We know that as we read the book of Acts, that after Paul's arrest in Acts chapter 21, a series of trials would lead him to Rome to appear before the emperor of Rome, Caesar Nero. We know that when Paul was under house arrest for those two plus years, he would write the prison epistles of Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. He would then would be released in about 63 A.D. from that, that prison in Rome, his first imprisonment. He would return then to Ephesus for a short time, and he would appoint Timothy as the pastor. He would leave then for Macedonia, and eventually he would write this letter to Timothy to encourage him. He's instructing Timothy, edifying him for the difficult ministry that he was appointed and called to do. It wouldn't be easy for young Timothy because we know that shortly after this, in about 64 AD, that Caesar Nero is going to begin to persecute Christians. He's going to burn them at the stake. He's going to feed them to the lions and the amphitheaters. We also know that as Paul had prophesied some five years before this, that you read in Acts chapter 20, addressing the Ephesian elders, that he said that there's going to be savage wolves speaking perverse things and strange doctrine, drawing disciples after themselves. I've warned you for three years, day and night, with many tears. 
And we know that that has taken place because Timothy, strange doctrine, has come into the church. And Paul instructs Timothy, I urge you that when I went into Macedonia, that you remain in Ephesus, verse 3 of the chapter. Timothy, the Lord needs you to stay here in Ephesus. And I urged you to remain in this major church in Proconsular Asia. And you are charged, that is, I charge you, Timothy, to teach no other doctrine. Because the deceptive doctrine has crept into the church. Fables and myths and endless genealogies, which is causing disputes. They have turned aside to idle talk, some. And we read last time that there are also others desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. There are ones who are wanting to be teachers here in Ephesus, teachers of the law, but they don't even understand what the law is for, what the implications of the law, what the purpose of the law is. And sometimes when a person can sound very confident or very dynamic or they can be very good at appealing to the flesh, we can think that, hey, he or she must know what it is that they're talking about because they sound so confident. They're so dynamic. They, 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 what they say is, sounds so good. And we know that as we get older, as we grow in the Word of God, as we become wiser, that that's not always the case. Just because somebody seems to have authority in, in teaching or uh, saying things with confidence or very dynamic when it comes to teaching the Scriptures, that they can misrepresent the truth. And that's why we need to be ones that we're grounded in sound doctrine, which Timothy is being encouraged over and over again in the prison epistles. That is encouraged that is instructed over 30 times that you are to continue in sound doctrine. Teach the word of God. Continue to hold fast to it. And so these legalists in Ephesus, they had no understanding of the implications of their own teaching. It's not the law that's going to make you righteous. And as we continue, and we'll conclude the chapter this morning, we're going to start out by being reminded that the law cannot save, but Jesus saves. As once again, reading in verse 15, yet this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So who did Jesus come to save? He came to save sinners. And who are sinners? We are. He came to save us. And remember that last week as we read in verse 11, Paul says, I was entrusted with this glorious gospel. And to remind you once again, it is glorious to know that we uh, have sinned, it separated us from God, and that Jesus Christ came to this world, the Son of God. God in the person of Jesus Christ and went to the cross to make atonement for our sins. That's why he came. Because he loves you, he loves me, to give us hope. And we have a living hope through his resurrection. And that we can be saved. And we can come into right relationship with the Father. We can have the spirit of adoption, not of fear, where we can cry out, Abba, Father. That we know that we can have the promise of eternal life. That's why the gospel is so glorious. And Jesus came, as Paul reminds us, to this world to save sinners. And he says, whom I was chief. In Matthew chapter 9, many of you know, now, Jesus saw this tax collector that was sitting there meeting, you know, collecting taxes uh, uh, there at uh, Capernaum. His name was Levi. 
And Jesus walked over to him and said, follow me. And Levi, later known as Matthew, that he would get up and he would stop serving the king of Rome and, and collecting taxes to go and serve the king of kings, Jesus Christ, and be the disciple. Well, we know that Matthew, as you continue reading, would have Jesus over for dinner to meet all his friends who were tax collectors. And tax collectors, you need to understand, at that time, they were hated. They were seen as traitors. They were seen as the worst, deceivers and liars and, and bullies and, and all of this. So they were not liked at all. Uh, they were despised. Uh, they were seen as the worst. And here is Matthew with his tax collecting buddies and other sinners. And the religious elite show up, the Pharisees. And, and the Pharisees, of course, in that day thought that they were so righteous before God because of their religiousness, because of the traditions that they kept. We're more righteous than anyone. And they saw that Jesus was having dinner with these tax collectors and the other outcasts of society, and they barked at the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, hearing that, would say, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we cannot present the gospel, the glorious gospel, in a way that we don't mention sin. People need to understand that they're sinners, and our sin has separated us from God. And if you were with us in our study of the book of Romans, we covered that section where, as Paul gives, you know, the theme of the book of Romans, that it's the power of God, I'm not ashamed of it, to, to all those who believe for salvation. And then in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he presents, we all need the gospel. Why? Even if you are one that if you consider yourself immoral or heathen or you're self-righteous, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all gone astray. And the wages of sin is death. But then he gives the wonderful doctrine of justification that comes freely through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul, he's reminding us here, after he has said that I was one, that I was an insolent man. I was a violent man. I was arrogant. I was the worst. And that's why I believe he writes here that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I was chief. I persecuted the church. I, I killed Christians. I blasphemed Christ. I'm the chiefest of sinners, but yet he has saved me, and that's why Jesus came. There is no man or no woman who will be able to get into heaven other than God's grace extended to them by faith in Jesus Christ. And as we know that the scriptures tell us that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's not by our own merit, our own religiousness, trying to be good. It won't work. We fall short. Only Jesus bring salvation to you and to me. And that's why we need to make sure that people understand why Jesus came. He came to die for sinners. He came for you and for me. Because even as Adam ate of that forbidden fruit, we know from Romans chapter 5 that sin and death came to all men. But because of the righteous act of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, now life comes to us. He came to save sinners, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through the world he might, be, he might save for those who believe in him. 
they're not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. For you who like to make these references. You see, you need to show that to people because there are people all around us. I'm sure you experience this. Is how can you Christians say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? How can you say that he's the only means to, to, to God? How can you, you know, say that many people are, uh, that God's going to send them to hell if they don't come to Christ? Well, we know that the truth of the scripture is this, that Jesus said that I am the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We know that the Bible declares that our sin has separated us from him. And Jesus came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. That there is a hope that is provided for us, for those who are willing to come and put their faith in Jesus Christ. We need to tell people that. He came to save. That's his desire. We're going to read in the next chapter that it is, you know, God who desires that all men be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth. But he's not going to force his way into our hearts. We can tell people that he didn't leave us without any hope. He came to save. And Paul continues here in verse 16, However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He has extended his grace, the unmerited favor of God to me. And then Paul just breaks out in praise in verse 17. We usually think as Paul, as the incredible man of God, which he was, with this incredible ministry, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He said that the gospel has been entrusted to me. God has called me to the ministry. Absolutely incredible man of God. He was called to the ministry, verse 2. God put me there, but he never forgot about God first saved him. He was a great example of a minister, of a servant of God. And he's a great example to sinners. And that is how God's grace and love and mercy, his provision on the cross, his resurrection from the grave given us a living hope can save anyone who truly believes on him for eternal life. And so wonder that he breaks out in, in praise to the king eternal. He's always been the king of all kings in all power and in all glory. The king immortal. He is the creator of all existing before anything else existed. To the God invisible who alone is wise. Will you please remember that? Especially with all the voices that are out there. All the so-called experts, all those who claim to be wise. Listen, our God is wiser than any man or any woman, any philosopher, any professor, any politician, anyone who has power, prestige, or prominence. I don't care how smart or wise somebody claims to be, how many degrees they have, letters after their names, whatever the case may be. Our God is infinitely wiser. He is the king of the ages, the only wise one, alone who is wise. And then Paul gives this charge, another charge, as we finish the chapter. Listen, don't go to sleep. This is really important. Verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. 
Having faith in a good conscience, with some having rejected concerning the faith, has suffered shipwreck. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul now, he gets back to the specific manners before Timothy, and he says this is a charge. And again, it might be translated command. It, it's a strong word. It's a military term that Paul is using here. We already saw it in the beginning of the chapter. This is an urgent command. And, and it's a command that would come from a, like a superior officer to, to his soldiers. Timothy, God has put me into the ministry for the glorious gospel. Timothy, my son, my son, he has put you into the ministry. And I charge you that you teach no other doctrine, verse 3. And in accordance to, with the prophecies given to you, that you wage the good warfare. Or it might be fight the good fight. You see, as I mentioned before, Timothy had no illusions about ministry. His introduction to ministry may have been on Paul's first missionary journey when he was in Lystra. That's where Timothy was from. When they stoned Paul, drug him out of the city, left him for dead. In other words, they stoned Paul, drug him out, and threw him in the garbage heap. Left him for dead in the garbage heap. That's where the garbage heap would be, outside the city. Paul gets up and he goes back into the city. Timothy was probably about 18 years of age at that time. 18 to 20 years of age. And as I mentioned, he has been with Paul for 15 years. He has traveled with Paul, learned from Paul, cold, you know, labored with Paul in ministry. He, he has learned from, from Paul. He has learned from this man, but he suffered with Paul as well. He's seen the trials and difficulties and, and challenges that Paul has gone through. And he knew, Timothy knew at this time, 15 years later after he joined Paul, being faithful to Paul, that ministry was not a game this is not a playground, but rather this is a battleground. And Timothy, my son, my son, I charge you, this is important, that you fight the good fight of the Spirit. Listen, men, if today you want to be the man of God that you have been called to be, the husband, the father, it's going to be warfare. If you want to be the woman of God, the wife, the mother that God has called you to be, ladies, it's going to be a battle. If you want to live a life pleasing to God, there is an enemy that's going to come after you. And if you want to serve the Lord in any way, if you want to minister and serve others and be a blessing to others, you especially, you are going to be a target and your family is going to be a target. Your spouse and your kids. And to be reminded once again that this is not a game. This is a conflict. This is a battle that we're in. And I know that over the years, Sue and I, we have made it a priority to pray for our kids. Because we know that the enemy is going to come after them. 
that it's going to be a priority for him to come after them and get a foothold into their lives. We make it a priority to pray for others that are in ministry, to, to pray for those that we love and care for, because we know it's a battlefield out there. And you are too as well. You are to do so, Timothy, in faith, in this divine appointment in ministry. It is to be done where you please God. You don't please yourself. You are called according to the prophecies. As we know that Paul would address Timothy in his last book that we have recorded in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy, therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on by my hands. And he goes on to say, who God has called us with a holy calling. This is a holy calling, Timothy. You must fight the good warfare. Stay the course, Timothy. Having faith and a good conscience. I like what Warren Worsby says concerning these verses. That it's not enough to proclaim faith with our lips, but we practice the faith in our daily lives. I think that more and more in the church, and many of you, you know this to be true. It is not being encouraged to fight the good fight. Unfortunately, what we're hearing more is to live a compromised life. You don't have to worry about holiness. You don't have to walk in biblical morality. And if we are going to reach the world, we need to be culturally relative. And let's go ahead and say that it's okay to drink as ministry leaders and as pastors. Go ahead and go to distilleries and, you know, breweries, and that's the cool thing, you know, and that's where we need to be, have pub theology. Just go ahead and use crude language in the pulpit. Let's act and talk more like the world so that we can minister to people. And I want to say this, because I've been in ministry for a long time, and I don't claim to have the corner on ministry by the least bit. But I have talked to a lot of people over the years. I talked to a lot of people during the week. And I'll tell you the truth on this. People don't need more of the world. They don't need more of the world. People are choking on the world. They are gagging on the world. And they don't need someone in the pulpit trying to be slick and cute so they can gag more on the world. We need to be about the things of the Lord. We are living in a world that is hopeless. We are living in a world where alcohol and drugs are destroying lives. And we're going to think it's cool to have pub theology? I've had young people sit at my dinner table and had dinner with us. They're no longer here because alcohol destroyed their lives. Drugs that are destroying lives. Families that are going through tremendous turmoil. Families that are being strained and relationships severed. Marriages ending. Our young people are turning to every worldly thing and philosophy that is presented. And people are hopeless and depressed and defeated. They don't need more of the world. Church, we need to stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ.
And the church needs to embrace the faith, the body of doctrine that is the word of God that has been handed down to us before us this morning. And if the gospel and the word of God doesn't have the power to change lives, then we might as well close down the building and go home. If the gospel of Christ is not powerful and alive to rescue people who are in captivity, to bring light to those in darkness, to free those who are in bondage, to bring hope to those who feel hopeless, to bring victory to those who feel defeated, to bring joy into the lives who are downcast. If the gospel doesn't have the power to do that, then what are we to be about as a church? To tell you, go out and get more of the world? We'll see how that works, and it doesn't work well. Timothy, some have suffered shipwreck. They have rejected concerning faith, or that means to thrust it away. It means to live like the world, desire more of the world, and you're going to end up being shipwrecked. Don't retreat, Timothy. I'm giving you this charge to fight. Having faith and then a good conscience, which is important for good warfare. So do you have a good conscience? You see, a person with a good conscience will do the will of God in spite of what the world says that we are to live and how we are to act and what we are to, how to behave. Paul mentions Hymenius. Must have been a mean guy by his name. Hymenius, how mean he is. And Alexander... <laughs> They deliberately rejected their good conscience in order to live ungodly lives. Paul writes that I delivered them to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So what does that mean? Well, I believe from perhaps other passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that it indicates they are put out of the church into the world, which is the domain of Satan. He's the God little G of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. Hymenius, he's mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verses 16 through 18. As Paul, once again, some of the last words that we have of Paul before he is executed, put to death by Caesar and Nero. He says, Timothy, shun profane and idle babblings for it will increase to more ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus, who are the sort, Paul warning the church. Paul writes how they've overthrown the faith of some. And then as we come back to our text here, Alexander, we don't know who he is. It's a common name. Some say, is that Alexander the coppersmith, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4? We don't know for sure. Probably not. It seems to indicate this was one in the church that, that was, you know, as Paul says, that, that you need to deal with them. Timothy, I give you this charge. Alexander the coppersmith, there's no indication that he was a part of the church ever. But we don't know for sure. Alexander's a common name. We need to hold on to the gospel, the sound doctrine, to fight the good fight of the Spirit, to wage a good warfare. Timothy, my son, I charge you to be a good soldier, to fight. And it is a charge for us today. When I read this about fighting the good fight and I read about how Paul's going to 
tell Timothy, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, as you read how he encourages Timothy, because it is a battle out there. I can't help but think about the Old Testament when you read about David's mighty men. Many of you, you know about David's mighty men. And, and, and David, when he was running from Saul, Saul was persecuting David. And we know that he was in the cave of Adullah. And, and as you, you know, read about uh, David, he gathered some men around him. And, and in that, uh, he writes that everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to David some 400 men. That was David's mighty men. Those who, who gathered around David, David killed giants. They became David's mighty men. They were killing giants. They were ones, their resumes were ones of, we're in distress, we're in debt, and we're discontented. That they were downcast of soul. They gathered together to David. Doesn't sound very impressive. But what God did with them, they became the mighty men of David that were absolutely incredible. And when you go to 2 Samuel chapter 23, 1 Chronicle chapter 11, there are three specific mighty men of David, Adino, Eleazar, and Shammah. And when you read very briefly about them, it tells us that Adino, he's the one that lifted up his hand against the Philistines and defeated them. Eleazar, he attacked the Philistines to where when he defeated them, the, the sword stuck to his hand. He held it so tight. And in Shammah, he would guard this field of lintel, it tells us, and he defeated the Philistines. David's mighty man. You want to be a mighty man or a woman of God? Listen, that describes us. Distress, everyone in debt, everyone discontented. That was us before we came to Christ. But we have gathered ourselves around the son of David, the greater than David, Jesus Christ, who enabled us to be a mighty man, a mighty woman of God. And if you want to be a good soldier for Jesus Christ, then you be one like Adino, that you lift your hands to the Lord. And we're going to see that it is Paul that's going to write next week, we'll see in chapter 2, that he says to the men, that he says that you are to be ones, that you are to lift your hands, praying everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting, lifting your hands to prayer. Men, are you praying for your spouse? Are you praying for your kids? Do they see you when they get up in the morning? Or do they know that you're in your room on your knees and you're praying for your family? And you're lifting up your hands in prayer for protection and guidance and for wisdom. Lord, help me. Help me that our home may be a godly home. To minister to my kids, protect us. Help me be the husband that you've called me to be. Whatever state that you're in, the man of God that you called me to be, you will have victory if you're a man, if you're a woman of prayer, that ladies, as you pray for your children, grandparents for your grandchildren, as we pray, then you're going to see God working in a mighty way. We cannot say, I don't have time. And if any of you guys are there saying, well, I get up early. I get up early too. And I don't have time. We cannot, in the days in which we're living in, say, I don't have time to pray. We need to be like Job, who was blameless and upright, who got up early and he sacrificed a bull on behalf of his kids. And we need to be ones that are up and we are sacrificing time 
to lift our kids and our family to the Lord. It was Moses, as you read the book of Exodus, that the Lord said, go after the Amalekites. You need to do battle with them. They're, they're a picture of the flesh. And as Moses is there lifting up his hands, it says that they were having victory as Joshua was down in the valley fighting the Amalekites. But then his hands became heavy, and as they went down, then the Amalekites were winning. And it was her, it was Aaron that came alongside and they lifted up Moses' hands and his hands are lifted up and they had victory. Listen, as you are praying, as you are gathering yourself around godly people, fellowship is so important. Men with other men, ladies with ladies. As they are coming alongside and praying with you and for you, as you are praying, you're going to have victory. You're going to have victory over the flesh that you can struggle with so badly. You want to be a mighty man or woman of God, then be one, that you're lifting up your hands in prayer. Second of all, that it was the other, uh, you know, uh, man of God here, the, the, the mighty warrior uh, of God, the mighty men around David. If you want to be a mighty man or woman, just like Eleazar, he attacked the Philistines and the sword stuck to his hand. And you be a man or woman of the word. As you put on the armor of God, you have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And you continue to grow in the Word of God and to grow in godly wisdom because if you don't, you're going to get deceived and you're going to give in to every kind of deception that is out there and the voices of the world out there. Thirdly, you stand fast in the faith. Paul would exhort that, as you heard a couple weeks ago, as Pastor John taught. That you watch, stand fast in the faith. You be brave, you be strong. You be strong. And Shama's there, he's told by David, you guard this field of lentils. And all of a sudden, somebody cried out, the Philistines are coming. And he's there, and he heard the command of David. And he said, I'm going to stand my ground, I'm going to fight. And you have the Son of David, Jesus Christ, who has commanded you to stand fast in the faith. And you know, when Shama said, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to fight, I think the Lord looked down at him and said, I like that. And I'm going to give him power and the ability to defeat those Philistines. And as you stand fast in the faith, because you heard the command of the Lord, he's going to enable you to be able to fight against all those things that come against you. I love to think about Nehemiah as well. And in Nehemiah, we know in chapter 4, is that people are discouraged and there's rubble and they're building the walls and the enemies are coming against them and threatening them. And, and they said, this is too much, Nehemiah. We can't do this. And Nehemiah, he exhorts them and he would station the people in front of their homes there on the wall. And the men had a trial in one hand and, and a sword in the other hand. And they were on watch. And it was Nehemiah that said, listen, the Lord is great and awesome. Our God is great and awesome. Fight. You fight for your brethren. You fight for your children. You fight for your wives. And it's the same word given to us as you are making a living, providing for your family, as you're desiring to live for the Lord, serve the Lord, a trial on one hand, and the word of God on the other hand, you fight and you pray and you fight the good fight of the Spirit for your children, for your grandchildren, for those that you love and care about. You fight for your spouse. 
because God is great and awesome. And then finally, and then we'll finish up. I can't help but think about Joshua, who was told in Joshua chapter 1, you're going to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. So Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Three times Joshua is told that in chapter 1. And at the end of chapter 1, the people come to Joshua and they said, Joshua, we will follow you. We will allow you to lead us like Moses led us. We will listen to you. But one thing that we ask, one thing that we ask of you, you be strong and of good courage. There are people in your life that need you to be strong and of good courage. Your children, your grandchildren, there are others linked to you in your life, family members, even co-workers, friends. They need you to be strong and of good courage. And it isn't, let's see how tough I am. I'm going to eat glass and spit nails. It is a man or woman who humbles himself and says, Lord, I need your help because God will enable you in the things that he's commanded you. And as he commands you to be strong and good courage, to fight the good fight, he's going to enable you. You fight. And you cannot be lazy in that in the day in which we are living in. You cannot say, I'm not going to put on the armor of God because you're going to go out there in the world tomorrow, later today even, and the enemy's going to be there throwing the fiery darts at you and coming against you, and he's going to come against your family, and he's looking to rip your head off. Calvary Chapel, fight. Let's fight the good fight of the Spirit. Fight the good warfare, amen? Because it is a battle out there. But we fight from victory, not for victory. But he will enable you. You pray. You be men and women of prayer. May we be a church of prayer. We're going to talk about that next week. May you be a man or woman of the word. May we be a church of the word. And let's stand fast in the faith. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this word given to us. Lord, we need you. We need you desperately. We need you, the gospel for salvation. So I want to pray for anyone who's here that maybe you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've tried to be religious on your own or thought you were okay. But listen, we're all sinners. And Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save you. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Shortly after he said that, he went to a cross and he died on that cross to make atonement for your sins. He was put into a grave and he rose again. He conquered sin and death. He's the only one that has done that. No one else. No one else and nothing else will save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ. He's calling you today to come to him, to be forgiven, to come in faith and trust him for forgiveness and salvation to bring you into the family of God for a new beginning. He loves you so much. Will you come? The invitation is always to come, to come in faith. And you can do so right where you are. That Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. 
You died on the cross for me, a sinner, forgive me. And I turn to you, I repent, I turn direction. And I put my faith and trust in you for salvation, for forgiveness. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior, to sit upon the throne of my life. And I want to know you and walk with you. And I want to serve you. Thank you for bringing me into the family of God and for this new beginning and hearing my prayer this morning in Jesus' name. And listen, we've got a prayer team coming up front here. That I, I would ask that if you made that decision, come up and tell them the decision that you made. And for anyone here that you need prayer, and we all need prayer, I pray for everyone here this morning that we would be fighting the good warfare to be mighty men and women of God, to surround ourselves around Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to depend on you and rely on you, to be men and women of prayer, of the Word, standing fast, being encouraged, fighting the good fight of the Spirit, because you are great and awesome, Lord. Bless everyone here now as we go our way. May we be encouraged greatly, Lord. Work in our lives in a wonderful, powerful way, Lord, which you want to do as we surrender to you in humility and dependency. All in the name of Jesus. Amen.